0: Bread alone, but by every word of God. Jesus repeated that in Matthew chapter four and verse four, Luke chapter four four. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And um, if God told us that that we are to live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, then does it make sense that God would not allow His words to remain intact for us to live by? I mean, isn't that kind of a a, a silly? Command to give us if we're not going to have His Word, and so I do believe that God has preserved His Word. I, uh, I know, I know, I'm, I'm quite sure you'll agree with me that two thousand years ago they were not speaking English, and uh, and four thousand years ago they were not speaking English. Uh, the Bible in the Old Testament was mainly Hebrew and some Aramaic. Uh, Daniel was written in Aramaic. Uh, and Hebrew uh, pretty much was most of the other parts of the of the Old Testament. The New Testament was mainly originally written in Greek. And those two languages, Greek and Hebrew, I, I'm not so much uh, familiar with Aramaic, but the the Hebrew and Greek I know are pre, pre, very very precise and very concise languages. Are you listening, guys? And those two languages, the punctuation and everything about them, is very precise. You can't possibly misunderstand because of the way things are punctuated and accentuated in the in the grammar and people will say but greek was more precise than even than english and 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 maybe that's so but here's what i know i know that that nobody really speaks the koine greek that was given that the word of god was given two thousand years ago and yet in psalm 12 It says this in verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Some would say that's not talking about the words. Verse 7 is talking about the people in the previous verses. That God would keep the people and preserve them from this generation forever. Well, it comes right after Timbrook. It comes right after verse 6. And verse six is talking about the words of the Lord being pure words, and that he would keep them. I, I just believe that God has kept his word and that we have it in English today. I realize that God didn't deliver it in English, but I do believe that faithful copies, and by the way, when it comes to the Bible itself, nobody has the originals anymore. The originals have just faded away. I mean they they crumbled. What, what were they supposed to do with the Bible? They were supposed to use it. And there were no copy machines. There were no printing presses. And so there, there, it wasn't like they could slap it on a machine and make duplicates and plates and things like that. Every copy was handwritten. And so it was too precious. It was very precious. And there wasn't any, there wasn't any Bibles laying around, so to speak. They were being used. And if they were laying around, they were probably because they were corrupt and they weren't translated or copied correctly. So there there are no originals anywhere. So there are copies, and there are vast majority of of manuscript fragments, not whole books, but fragments and pieces and parts of Greek and and whatnot, and Hebrew is more intact because of the Jewish nation staying more intact, but the Greek especially, just fragments here and there. But what we do see is over 5,000 manuscripts that in the main, in the majority, they agree with, and they come, our King James Bible comes from that same lineage. I believe that 400 plus years ago, God allowed King James and, and, and motivated King James and, and uh, encouraged him to fund the translation of an English version of what all those texts were. And I believe, just as copies continued on the inspiration of God, I believe that the proper translation, just like a copy, continues on the inspired word of God and it is preserved for us in the English language that's what I believe recently I've gotten into an argument with a pastor who mocks that idea and I just said and I'm not trying to be ugly to him but I said look I believe that I'm holding the word of God preserved in English in my hand and that I can read it I don't believe that the inspired preserves words of God's or word of God is only in Hebrew and Greek because if that's the case, then how can man live by, not live by bread alone, but by every word? Raise your hand if you speak Greek and Hebrew very well. Me neither. I probably speak it a little better than you, but I don't speak it very well. And, and does God want us all to learn Hebrew and Greek before we can read his word? I don't believe so. Let me remind you where languages came from. who did that and then in acts chapter 2 let me remind you that in one instant he he caused he caused instant translation in 18 different languages and they all heard peter's sermon in their own tongue they all heard the inspired word that you read in acts chapter 2 they all heard it in their own language at the same time god can handle translation but see, scholars say, "Oh, translation—you're—you're—you're you're, you're bound to have in—you know—you're bound to have imperfection in translation." Well, if, if it's only human beings, you're right. But if God's involved with it, it'll be okay. And people can take issue with that. And I—I I don't believe that, that God had to re-inspire the translators 400 years ago. Tiburck, I want you to go back and sit with Sam, okay? He looks very lonely back there, and he's looking like he needs a friend. So I appreciate it if you do that for me. And I do believe that God moved those men, but didn't have to inspire or re inspire them. I just believe that God handled them and allowed them to be able to find all the resources necessary for them to translate into English. Now, someone else said, and I think this is a good point if Greek is the real Bible, if Greek is the real New Testament, and all we have is the best rendition in English. Then how come the nation of Greece isn't the greatest Christian nation the world's ever seen? How come the Greek Orthodox Church who has had Greek for thousands of years, aren't the most Christian church? So and oh by the way, you know you know who is the greatest Christian nation the world has ever seen? the one that was started? when this was the only English Bible there was being used. I mean, this was the Bible. And so I'm just going to start off tonight by saying point number one, what do we believe? We believe that God's word is inspired and preserved. Does every language have a, a good copy? Not yet. But thankfully, the most predominant language on the earth, I didn't say more people speak this language. But in more countries than not, if you can speak English, you can get by versus most any other language. And God has given us, I think, his word in English, and it's a blessing. And so we believe that God inspired his word, but we also believe that God preserved his word. Because honestly, what good is inspiration without preservation? what good is it to say it was inspired but we don't have it anymore it doesn't and oh by the way if you do take the time to learn all the greek you can possibly learn then they'll tell you well we're not quite sure which text is exactly the same in other words even the text that i was given the new testament greek uh compiled by scrivener in 1881 it says in the in the preface of that book you open up that Greek New Testament and in the front it says this is the Greek text that underlies the King James All right but it was compiled in 1881 So how did how how did they publish it in 1881 and the 1611 guys use it Now what he did was he he took what he believed they used the most of and he he had that, a guy named Biza and some others, and, and he took the best that he could find, but even Mr. Scrivener admits that there are portions where, where he couldn't find any Greek to match the King James, but the Latin Vulgate matched it perfectly. Which just proves, as everybody knows, that the King James translators did not use one source. They compiled everything they had. There were 50 plus men. They made six or seven teams. Of, of six or seven men and these seven or eight men would get together and they would work on one section of the Bible and translate and work on it together as a team then when they decided they had their perfect draft done and what they were happy with they would trade places with the next team and have that team check their work while they check that team's work and they did that I don't even think we got 56 men with that kind of capability today One of those men was Sir Lancelot Andrews and he spoke 15 languages by himself. And it was said of him that he spoke them so well you weren't sure which was his actual mother tongue. I do believe that it was special what happened 400 plus years ago. I'm not saying magical, but I do think it was special. And we are spoiled as English speaking people because we do have, I mean think about it, the word Bible means book. That's what the word biblos is, book. We don't realize that most people never ever in in history past even if they did have a good copy of Timothy or or an actual translation you know word for word copy of Daniel. Most of the believers in time past never had a complete book 66 books like you and I have had all of our lives and and uh english has had for six, the last 400 years we we do have a special privilege and a, and a and a golden opportunity and so um it is it is a blessing to be to be in the time we're in uh and to and to realize that god's given us access to all of his inspired word and i do believe preserved and so uh, we can go on and talk about that over and over again but i just believe that that god's word is pure and it's preserved and we can trust it and uh if i were a missionary in a foreign country i would i would do like scrivener i would use the king james as kind of the standard and then i would go back and try to find what others you know because sometimes greek will translate better into that country's language than english will english has some goofy things about it as far as translating but i would never question what the bible says in the uh, in the in the english my pastor who's in heaven uh laid it in my mind and heart to help me to realize that when I before I went off to Bible college that I, I I can learn Greek if I want to and understand some of it and I have but to never decide that the Greek corrects the English. You said well but what well, didn't it come from Greek? It did, but we no longer have everything that it that we know it came from. So so it's like playing a game of Greek cards without all the cards now. I hope I'm making sense to you. But that's what's hap- happening and so there are pastors that w- that are, are are saying well it's it, you know only the originals were inspired and only the original language is the preserved word of god i just think that's that's failure i think i think you're shooting yourself in you, you, there's a lack of faith going on there and you're trusting too much in scholarship by the way god gave his word to churches not scholars god gave his word to churches not schools we don't need scholars to tell us what is the word of God. We just need to know. And, and all you got to do is look at history and see which Bible was the church using. By the way, these modern versions that you see, the new international version, the ESV, all that, that comes from a completely different family of Greek texts that wasn't being used for thousands of years. They found it buried in, in the sands of Egypt and other places in a monastery on a shelf. So that ought to be a real clue as to which family of texts is even the right family, which family of, of the two families of, of Bible texts was the one that, that God's people were actually using and dying at the being burned alive at the stake and dying for. It was the family called the received text of which the King James comes from. Now, I also want to talk about God. We learn from the word of God then some wonderful things about God himself. He is a triune God, or as some people would say, a trinity, the Godhead. And probably you are familiar with the three parts of the Godhead as we go to Genesis chapter number one and verse 26. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. When God is creating, God says in his creation, he says, and God said, let us make man in our image. Now, wait a minute. Who is he talking to? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's plural, right? Us, our, that's plural. But then verse 27 says, so God made man, God created man in his own image, in the image of God. Now, wait a minute. That's singular. Because God is singular and yet he's three. And so God says, let us make man in our image. And so we have God, the Father, God. And then you have God in human flesh, Christ, the Word. And you have the Spirit of God. And man is a three-part being as well. And he was created in the image of God. Turn with me, if you would, to a couple other places. Matthew chapter number three. Matthew chapter number three. God is three persons, and uh, he is referred to as the Trinity or triunity, triune God. Matthew chapter 3, in verse 16 and 17. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were open unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. So you have Jesus getting baptized in the water. He comes up out of the water from his baptism, and the Spirit of God, capital S, Spirit of God, descends like a dove and lights upon him. And the verse 17 says, And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Can you see all three of them there? Absolutely. You've got Jesus Christ, the human the human uh, uh, figure of God, Jesus in flesh, God in flesh. You have the spirit of God descending like a dove, whether or not he actually took the body of a dove at that point, I don't know, but like a dove, lighting upon him, and then the voice from heaven, God himself, the God the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Now, First John chapter 5, verse 7, First John 5, 7, these, this is a verse that... that is argued about over and over again. So many of the modern versions do not have verse 7 in there, or they have cut out half of verse 7. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and we know that John chapter 1 says Jesus is the Word made flesh. So the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one this verse is attacked over and over again and put in question in most of your modern versions if you happen to uh to to look at that but we believe in the word of god we believe in the in the king james bible being god's word in, in english and we can trust it and we believe over and over and again that god's word teaches a godhead of three god the father god the son god the holy spirit hebrews nine fourteen, First peter 1 2 also lots of other passages we could go to that just illustrate all three god the father god the son and god the holy spirit i don't want to take too much time on all these points because we'd be here forever but also concerning god god is there are three attributes of god omni omni meaning all o-m-n-i he is omni present what does that mean he is everywhere present God is all present. He is everywhere at the same time. That's awesome about God that He is everywhere present. Psalm chapter 90. Psalm chapter 90, and then Psalm 139. These are just cool things. And, and by the way, again, you can look all these references up and you can listen to this recording later if you want, or ask me questions anytime you want. And I'll I'll give you a, a whole bunch more verses than we're going to be able to take time to to do tonight but Psalm 90 verse 1 and 2 says lord thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations not just our generation before the mountains were brought forth that that's that's a while ago or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting thou art god that's awesome you and i have everlasting life but God has been from everlasting. I'm not from everlasting, but he is from everlasting and he is to everlasting. He's eternal. We sing that song, God is eternal. We sing it in the anchor club. Uh and it points in both directions because that's God. You can't you can't go you can't go back far enough into history and find the beginning of God. He didn't begin in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem, but he already existed and was God before he was born. He is everywhere present. He is everywhere in time. We were talking about this time chart, Frank. We were talking about looking at Genesis and seeing this this huge chart that goes all the way to the end of the New Testament and and then to realize that, that he has been there all the time. All throughout human history, God has been present. He is everywhere present. Right now, probably someone's heart is in a, hospital room with their husband but God is with him right now and he's here right now God is everywhere present that's why you can pray for your loved one who's away or halfway around the world or whatever it might be you can pray for them knowing that he's not just with you in Custer he's with them there as well isn't that awesome Psalm 139 and verse 7 Psalm 139, verse 7. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall behold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about thee. He's got x-ray vision and night vision. He can see better than infrared. Yeah, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day, as far as God's concerned. He sees it all. He is everywhere present. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 3 says that God sees everything. Jeremiah 23 and verse 23 and 24. Jeremiah 23, verse 23 and 24. Can any hide himself in the secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? I have heard what the prophet said, that prophesy lies in my name, saying I have dreamed a dream, I have dreamed. Can you hide from me? Uh, verse 23, am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God far off? Am I only a God near and not far away? Can any hide himself from me? It's almost comical when you read Jonah chapter 1 and it says, and Jonah went out from the presence of the Lord. No, he didn't. He just tried to. Mentally, he did, but not physically. You can't be away from the presence of the Lord. Not only is God omnipresent, but the second omni is he's omniscient. Or, or That has the word science in it. Omni-science or all-knowing. Because God is everywhere present, he knows everything. God knows more what's going on than anybody else because he can be everywhere at the same time. And so he knows the truth all the time. Never never rumors get started with God. The other day, one of the bus drivers said, hey, did you hear that the, the, uh, bus, the bus trip to uh, the other side of the state got canceled for the football team? I said, really, how come? Well, I guess they just didn't have enough players. So I said that to Mr. Dave. I said, hey, what's this about the football team not playing on the other side of the state? He said, they're not. I said, well, that's what the bus driver said. Well, that wasn't true. They did cancel the bus trip, but they took a different bus instead. And rumors happen all the time because we're not all-knowing. We're not everywhere present. And we're, we're just not omnipresent, omni-science. We're not all-knowing. And so rumors can get started because we just don't know the whole story. But guess who does? Guess who saw the whole thing and knows everything about it and you can trust him? We already saw some of these other places where god is present everywhere present look at uh hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 hebrews 4 there are more verses than i have time to turn to i probably should have just printed a lot of these out and read them tonight but hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do in other words he just knows because he's there he sees it all nothing is hidden from him proverbs chapter number five proverbs chapter five and verse 21 proverbs 5 and verse 21 for the ways of man are before the eyes of the lord and he pondereth all his goings not only does god see what we're doing but the bible says god ponders what we're doing and unlike anyone else, God knows our heart. What's special about the Bible is it's not just a history book of facts or of people. The Bible also tells us that God knows the hearts. God knows what was in the heart of people. God knows the motives behind why they did it. We know about historical figures, but we don't necessarily know what they were thinking all the time. God is omnipresent, and God is omniscient, and the third omni Is he's omnipotent. And omnipotent is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. Quickly, I'm just going to show you some verses in Isaiah, and then we'll move on here. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, and then 45, and then 46. Isaiah 44, and verse 6 says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God I am everything and beside me there is no God Isaiah 45 verse 18 for thus saith the Lord that created the heavens God himself that formed the earth and made it he hath established it he created it not in vain he formed it to be inhabited I am the Lord and there is none else Isaiah 46 and verse 9 Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. You know, God sounds a lot like Muhammad Ali, except God was right, and Muhammad Ali wasn't. Remember how much he talked about himself? I'm not trying to make fun of the guy, but he didn't die talking about himself, did he? He was pretty much out of his mind. But God, unlike Muhammad Ali, could brag about himself. I am the God, and there's nobody besides me. That's God. He's omnipresent, and he's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows everything, he is everywhere, and he has all power. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. Why? Because he's all powerful. Our God is the most powerful. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, starts out and he says, I found out who the real powerful God is. And then he tells the story of how that he was like this tree that God mowed down and cut him down to size. And you get to the end of Daniel chapter 4 and and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the greatest king of the world at the time. One of the seven wonders of the world was his gardens right there in Babylon. And at the end of Daniel chapter 4, he says in like verse 34 and 35, he says, he's the God. There is nobody like him. He's all powerful. That's our God. And of course we could go on, but Jesus, what do we believe about him? That Jesus was manifest, he was God manifest in the flesh. John chapter 1 says in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's who he is. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3:16 that God was manifest in the flesh. The modern Bible versions change that to he was manifest in the flesh. That changes it. That's not as special as saying God was manifest. Manifest means revealed. God already was, but he revealed himself in Bethlehem in the flesh. And and so Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is fully God, but he's also fully man. The Bible says in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus was a son given, but he's still called the Mighty God and the Father. That's because he is God. It's, it's amazing when you, when you see some of the things that about Jesus and you realize he is God, but he was also man. But he was never imperfect or a sinful man. Jesus Christ was... Fully God and fully man at the same time. He was perfect in every way. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, He was in all points like us yet without sin. He, he is our perfect high priest and he goes before. We, we have him who feels our infirmity and understands. He was virgin born. You know, years ago when I lived in Newcastle, there was a Lutheran minister who did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something, he's not the only one. I don't understand how you can call yourself a Christian and not believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Because if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, he's not God. And God isn't God. If he said he wasn't, Isaiah 7.14 says, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And Matthew 1 says, That prophecy of Isaiah came to pass when Jesus was born. A virgin conceived and bare a son. By the way, the modern versions in the Bibles that are out there say, A young woman will conceive and bear a son. That's not a miracle. Young women conceive and bear children a lot. But virgins, that only happened once. Jesus Christ, a virgin born, he is God. That proves his deity. And he lived a sinless life. He died on the cross, buried, rose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father right now. He's making intercession for all of us who are believers. And he will meet his bride, those, those of us that are saved in the air. And we'll, and then he'll return bodily to the earth before the millennial reign, and uh, uh, the thousand years, to set up his kingdom on earth with those who are his. That's who Jesus Christ is. The Holy Spirit, we preached about him last week. He's also God. But he points to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is not, his primary duty is to point people to Jesus, not to himself. And he resides in the body of everyone who is born again. And remember Jesus said, if I, it is expedient for, for me that I go away, expedient for you that I go away so that the comforter will come. And I mentioned last week how that Jesus in human form could only be one place at a time. But being God, he knew what was going on behind the scenes. But, but what Jesus is saying is, as I leave you physically, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within each one of you. That means that as a believer, wherever you and I go tonight, the Holy Spirit's going with us all at the same time. And then, of course, not only do we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we believe that man needs to be saved. And unlike John MacArthur, who I had the unpleasant experience of listening to sometimes on the radio this past week, I do not believe in Calvinism. And I do not believe that God predestines some people to be saved and other people to be lost. That really is what John MacArthur believes and what a lot of Calvinists believe is they believe that man is predestined. Now, I believe that God knows everything. And I don't understand and fully comprehend and I can't fully explain God and everything about God and that's okay with me because that means he's bigger than my brain. I just think of it this way. I just think that God probably can see two different directions in every person's life based on the choice they make. That's all I can think of. And being God, he knows all and yet he allows us to have a free will to choose to trust in Christ or not. And salvation is because of the shed blood of Christ. Salvation is a gift of God. It's by grace that we're saved. And certainly God grants us grace and mercy. But I don't believe that God's sovereignty and man's free will are at odds with one another. Instead of being a Calvinist or even an Arminian, I would just say we're biblicists. We just believe what the Bible says about it. Did God confront some people in a special way he certainly did he confronted Saul on his way to Damascus and he said Saul Saul why are you persecuting me it's hard for you to kick against the pricks isn't it Saul what does that mean I believe that that Saul watched Christians die I believe that Saul we know in Acts chapter number seven at the end of Acts chapter seven he watched Stephen get stoned to death Nobody in here probably has seen someone get stoned to death. But if you have, it's grotesque. I mean, the body is being crushed by big rocks. Not one. But imagine, imagine a 100 people pick up a great big stone and just smash it on one person. Stephen was stoned to death. And the Bible says that Saul stood there holding all the coats while they did it. And Saul would have watched Stephen look to heaven and say, I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. And he would have heard Stephen say, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. They don't know what they're doing. In other words, Stephen was willing to forgive them for what they were doing to him at the spot. And don't you think that started to prick at Saul's heart? This person is dying and yet they're still praying for me. And I think when Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, isn't it? I think that it was because Saul was under conviction. The more, more I get, are mean to these Christians, the more I try to get rid of them, the more it bothers me. But we don't see, we don't see God grabbing Saul by the throat and saying, you've got to get saved or else. We just see God confronting him. And I believe that happens and praise God when it does. But I don't believe that God predestines people to heaven or hell. I believe that is a choice that man makes and that's what we teach here. I do believe because of that that it's the job of all of us to do what Jesus said and that is to preach the gospel to every creature. We had some visitors this morning and they were associated, connected to Jeff and Robin and I appreciate the fact Jeff said that he would go out to their home and he would leave a tract and invite them to church. I wonder if you're doing that too. <clears throat> I wonder if you have had someone that has come to church or maybe even gotten saved as a result of your witness. That's what we're supposed that's really what we're supposed to do. I mean, isn't it encouraging to see Ruth's testimony with Anne, her neighbor lady who she's burdened, been burned for, who's now getting baptized next week cuz she got saved last month, praise God, for the for the soul winners those who are winning people to the lord and it's our job to take the gospel to every creature and not just tell them one time and then blow them off but to just carefully and lovingly and patiently witness to them and then as far as salvation we believe that we're eternally saved from the time that we are born again we are adopted into god's family and that's a relationship that can't change it's just a fact that the bible teaches that we are we have a relationship. We are have an adoption. We are born again. And and just like you are you are born into your family. Delmer's been a slagle all his life. Who knows? Maybe if you look back far enough in the family tree, there were some slagles that swung by their necks. Who knows? Delmer can't change that. You can't change your relatives. You're related to your relatives, and that's just the way it is. And the same thing with salvation. When you're born into God's family, you can't change that. You're related. The relationship is permanent. However, however, if Matt Furs gets out of sorts with Tom Furs, Tom Furs can't try to lie and say, Matt Furs is not my son. Everybody knows he is. But Tom Furs and Matt Furs might not have a good fellowship. And when it comes to salvation, we don't lose our salvation. However, we can, we can break the fellowship where we're not as close as we used to be with our Heavenly Father. We didn't lose our salvation. We didn't lose our relationship. That, can, that can't change. But we can become backslidden and lose the fellowship that we once have. And that's why First John talks about if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship. And we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive. So when it comes to salvation, we don't believe that we maintain good works to to stay saved. But we do believe that we maintain good works to stay in good fellowship with God. And if you've had good fellowship with God, you know what happens when it's not there. It's just not the same. It's not right. It's cold. It's dark. All right, we need to keep going. Let's go on to uh, Matthew chapter number 16 Matthew 16 We could talk all night about everything the Bible teaches. It's it's not possible to rehearse it all. But I think it's good once in a while for us to just remind ourselves. So what do we believe? Cuz it's really not very good. No, it's not good at all for you to say, well, well, I just believe what Pastor Matt believes. That's not good. And it really isn't even good to just say, well, I just believe the Bible. Well, that's good but what does that mean can you show me in the bible where you believe what you believe so in matthew 16 and verse 18 it says and i say also unto thee that thou art peter and upon this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it the conversation just before that was about uh, jesus and who he is and uh He said, who do you say I am? Verse 15. And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. A lot of times Peter said dumb things, but that time he said a really smart thing. Thou art the Christ. And so Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. And then verse 18, he says, I say unto thee that, that thou art Peter. And upon this rock that you just said of me being the Christ, I will build my church. And so the church is his church. Now, if you've been hanging around here for any length of time, you probably know the word church also means assembly. This is why we emphasize local church. We believe in a local church because, honestly, you can only have a local assembly. There are some dear people. Last month, there was a couple that visited here from Plankinton, South Dakota. I never saw them before in my life. But they said, we watch your services online. We haven't found a church to go to where we live, but we watch you online. And I appreciate that. That was a blessing to me. It was good to know that we're a blessing to them. However, they really aren't assembling with us. They're just watching online, and they need their local assembly. They need one. Because that's the only way you can church, is to assemble. And so... When we when we read the word of God, we have to realize that the practical definition of church is local assembly. Right there in Matthew in chapter 18, there's that passage in Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17, where Jesus talks about discipline and disciplining your brother. and and taking care of matters. It says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And so when it comes to issues that we need to deal with, we deal with them personally, and we try to take care of, of, of the situation between them and us. That wipes out any gossip and rumor, doesn't it? If someone's offended you or you've offended them, you just go straight to each other and you just talk to each other. And then if they won't listen, then you take one or two more, and in the mouth of two or witnesses, every word can be established so that it is verified what's being said. And then if they still won't listen, verse 17, and if he shall neglect to hear them, your little group that you brought, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church let him be unto thee and he the man in public. So if you've taken a few witnesses with you and you've gone back and tried to reason with them from the Bible why they need to get things taken care of and be right and they still won't listen, then you bring it before the church and if the whole church won't have a motivation and won't have a persuasion over them, they won't listen to the entire church, then the whole church is supposed to say, hey, you need to be kicked out of the membership of the church. You need to be considered removed from our church membership until you can get things, because that's not how you ought to behave, and you're not listening to what the Scripture says. So, that's how a local church should operate. But but it, what if you believe in a universal church? What well, it's a universal church? Well that that's what that's what the standard belief is among people who call themselves Christians. Did you know the word Catholic means universal? And the Catholics think that the Pope is the pastor of the church. But 99% of all the Catholics have never met their own pastor. And they never have assembled in Rome. And they really aren't a church. What I believe the Bible teaches is a universal family. In other words, there are Christians that live in Custer and they go to Mountain View Baptist Church but then there are Christians that live in Maryland and they go to some other church. And there are Christians that live in North Dakota and they go to a church. And there are Christians that live in Texas and they go to a church. And there's Christians that live in Wyoming and they go to a church. And we're all the same family. We all belong to the same Christian family, but we're not all of the same church. Does that make sense? Now, how do you practice what we just read, where you you tell it to your brother and you go with a few others with you and you talk to your brother? How do you discipline a brother if it's a universal church? You can't. So the practical use of the word church, Jesus is obviously talking about a local church. In other words, folks, Mountain View Baptist Church in Custer, South Dakota has its business and has to deal with its own issues. But Mountain View Baptist Church is not really... They have no business in whatever goes on in the churches in Rapid City, or the churches in Wyoming, or the churches in North Dakota. That's that local assembly's business. Pretty simple. And when you read the whole New Testament, you read about the church at Philippi. You, that was the church located in Philippi. Or the church in Colossians was the church that was meeting in Colossae. Or Philemon the book of philemon that's written to the church that was meeting in philemon's house these are all local assemblies that met in their own local areas and paul being an evangelist would would travel from church to church but he was not the pastor of any of those churches but he would ordain pastors in those cities to be like timothy and titus to be the pastors in those local areas and so we believe concerning church that it has to be local Now, one day the church will be universal. It will be assembled all universally. Hebrews chapter 12 says the general assembly and church of the firstborn, it will be all one. See, one day Jesus is coming back and all the believers, the whole family in heaven and earth, the whole family will be assembled together. And that will be the one and only, first time ever and last time ever, universal assembly. But until then, we have to practice something called local church. A lot of people don't like that because they don't want to have to belong somewhere and have a pastor who might notice them or pay more attention to them than they want to be noticed or or, or then to have to rub shoulders with other human beings who aren't perfect. And so it's much more convenient to just have a, an idea of a universal assembly, which isn't possible and not have that local church authority and a local church uh supervision. This is real dangerous when they start doing stuff like that. I'll mention a name that a lot of us know and we really like him. He really is a blessing. He's still a blessing because of how much he recorded of himself. But he messed up by not having a local church and that was Kent Hoban. Kent Hoban was was a great, probably the greatest creation evolutionist representative I've ever seen. But he never saw the need for him being underneath a local church and a local church pastor. I think that was the beginning of his mistakes. And I do think other Christians make big mistakes when they refuse to belong and to submit to a local church authority. When when we ordain someone to be ordained out of this church, we're saying we, the congregation, believe this person to be called of God and sent out by us to serve under our local assembly and that's what you find in the bible look at acts chapter 13 i'll not go much longer because i don't want to keep us here all night but acts 13 it says in verse 1 now there were in the church that was in antioch certain prophets and teachers this one church in antioch one of the greatest new testament churches there was certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that were called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul and as they ministered to the Lord and fasted the Holy Ghost said separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them and when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them they sent them away and then you know what Barnabas and Saul did they traveled all around the Mediterranean and all through Asia Minor and they just started preaching and they just started evangelizing and they were kind of like missionaries The word missionary is not in the Bible, but the word evangelist is in the Bible. And that's really what they were doing. They were just starting churches and witnessing to people and seeing people saved. And they'd they'd see them baptized. And because they were ordained, they had the permission of Antioch Church to be baptizing. And so they were baptizing and establishing churches and leaving a young man like Timothy or Titus to be the pastor there. And they'd go on to the next town. And they would just start preaching and and see people saved. And, And wherever God led them, that's where they were going. And that's how all these different missionaries that we support right now, that's how they got started. They grew up in a church somewhere, they got saved in a church somewhere, and that church sent them out. And they, maybe you went to other churches and asked for support, but they have a home church and a home church pastor. Years ago, Brother Bill Smith, who's going to be with us this coming week, said to me, Now, my pastor in Ohio is my pastor. And if my pastor in Laurel, Ohio calls me and says that I need to come home because there's an emergency back home that needs to be taken care of, he said, I'm going to have to leave Vacation Bible School in the middle of the week and go. If that's what my pastor said to do, I'd do it. Of course, I swallowed hard because I'm not very good at Vacation Bible School like he is. But I understood him because he respected and understands that that is his pastor and that is his church. It's a Safety for a missionary, a evangelist, to have a local church to pay attention to them. We're going to run out of time, so I'm not going to give you much more, but let me just say this. There are two offices in the church, pastor and deacon. Sometimes the word pastor is also the word bishop or elder, but pastor and deacon. And, and those are the two positions that the Bible talks about. Now, we've got other things. that We've got teachers, and the Bible does speak of teachers, but as far as an actual office, there's pastor and deacon. This coming winter is when we need to nominate and vote on our deacons again, or deacon. And pastor and deacon are the two offices. And I believe that that a healthy church needs to do exactly what Acts 13 did and pray and fast. And pray that God gives you the right men to be in those offices. And pastors and deacons are men that God uses and helps to lead and guide. And let's say that let's say that 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 wasp nest that's hanging in my tree explodes tomorrow, and I get stung forty-two times, and I go to heaven. Then it's going to be up to the men of Mountain View Baptist Church to find the new pastor. And so we need to take our job seriously. Because if you find the wrong pastor, it really has a, a consequence to it. And and if you find the right pastor, it has a consequence to it. And the same thing with deacons. Sometimes deacons can get a little too big for their britches. And that's, by the way, why we every two years revote. Because there are some churches that have lifetime deacons. And what's scary about that is, is that If they're a lifetime deacon, they can just start running the show. And that can be scary. That can be a concern. Where my wife grew up, there is a little country church where they have lifetime deacons. And there are deacons, and I'm not kidding, that show up for Sunday school and teach their Sunday school class and then go home. Don't even stay to listen to the pastor preach. And they can't get rid of them because they're lifetime deacons. Stuff happens when you get away from the Bible and you start to get too much uh, human error involved. But what's our job of a church? To glorify Jesus, to edify the saints, build up the Christians, and then to evangelize the lost. That's our job. That's what we're here for. So what's the purpose of ordaining a young man like we might do this coming week? It's to do those three things. To glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, to edify believers, and to evangelize the lost. Don't tell him I said this, but Brother Bill is getting old. He's a grandpa. He's 55. Some of you think that's young, but he's 55. He's not as energetic as he was when I first met him 20 years ago, when he was 35. And he doesn't have as many little helpers helping him anymore either. They've all grown up and gotten married or moved away. Brother Bill is praying for some young man to take over some of what he's been doing. Maybe the Lord would have Joshua do that. But if Joshua did that, he'd need to do it out of a local church, his home church, so that other churches would have the assurance and confidence that this this Joshua has an authority over him and he's not just running around like a maverick doing his own thing. So, you and I when we when we confront him and ask him questions about what do you believe and what do you believe about church and what do you believe, before we lay our hands on him and pray over him, we're assured that we understand what his role is and his job is as an ordained person <clears throat> Lastly, and I'm done. we need to also re- remember that we we as believers are to be separate. In our personal lives, I read this, Ross's question earlier tonight about unequally yoked. We have a responsibility to stay separate in in certain things. Now, we need to separate from unbelievers in behavior, but not in witnessing. Otherwise, we'd never witness to people. God wants us to talk to unsaved people, but not be yoked with unsaved people. And we also need to recognize the uh, the need to stay separate uh, concerning believers who are disobedient to the word. Remember we read in Matthew 18, if, if they decide they don't, they're rebelling and they don't want to listen, then we have to say, I'm sorry, you're, you're, we're going to have to treat you like a heathen and a publican, like someone who isn't right with God, and we're not going to be able to fellowship with you like we used to. And hopefully that'll change in their hearts, and they'll get right with God. There's personal, but then there's also ecclesiastical or church separation. We need to recognize in in today's world that not everyone who claims to be a Christian or not everyone who totes a Bible is necessarily following the same doctrine. Just because people are getting baptized doesn't mean they're saved. We hope they are, but we all know that sometimes baptism is not necessarily something that people are doing because someone got saved. They get in the cart before the horse. And there's lots of weird doctrine that's out there today. We need to be careful that we stay separate in what we do as a church. We fellowship with other Baptist churches. We drove clear across the state and our kids fellowship with another Baptist church across the state. And of course we do that. We'll do it again next month. But we need to be careful in, in our separation that way. And then political. We live in the greatest country on earth and part of the reason why is because they figured out from the word of God That there's supposed to be a separation of church and state. In Acts chapter number 5, Peter said to the authorities, we have to obey God rather than men. And there are times where we we need to obey the authority because there's nothing wrong with what they're telling us to do. That stop sign at the end of the road here is a good rule and we need to obey it. And there are lots of good things that we in this free country need to recognize. It's just what we need to do. But when it comes to obeying God over any government, we obey God. Because there is a separation of church and state. And lastly, Jesus is coming again. We believe that Jesus is returning. Not only did he leave bodily, he's coming again. And if you're saved, you'll be ready for when he comes. And if you're not saved, you need to get saved tonight. Well, this has gone a little longer than I would hope, but we've just covered the basics of what we say we believe from the Bible and I couldn't even turn to all the passages to show you tonight so we're going to close and I do believe that Ross was trying to ask for 834 I think he was throwing that out there so to honor him I'm going to sing 834 let's stand and sing 834 it's a good song he was trying to get a third favorite in there and so I'm going to help him out 834 Don't forget Wednesday and then don't forget Saturday and of course next Sunday. Looking forward to this day, the unclouded day. No more clouds, no more problems, no more trouble. Oh, they tell me of a home far beyond the skies. Oh, they tell me of a home far